right. I hope everyone's been doing well, by the way. Hope everyone's healthy and safe. And however annoying and difficult this is, um, that we know that we have uh, some of the most beautiful blessings in the world, Baruch Hashem, thank God. Um, and we should be zochet to be able to focus on the berachot and the blessings that we have at all times so uh, that we can remain in a very beautiful, uh, in a beautiful place um, with our children, with our wives during, during all this difficult time. <clears throat> okay, um, hopefully by next time we do this Zoom, I'll have arranged that they, people can admit themselves by themselves because it keeps uh, clicking in and asking me to admit more people. Okay, so let's see if we can get started together now, all right? And uh, if I apologize if I may need to uh, pop out and just admit more people as time goes on, okay? So we begin now our, our uh, journey into Sefer Vayikra. Vayikra is the book, first of all, it's my Bar Mitzvah parasha this week. Um, and uh, I, uh, I, I mean, if we were in the synagogue, I would, I would read a little bit. Vayikra Moshe, Vaydaber Amuna Elav, Oel Moed, Lemor. I still remember that from uh, a few short years ago when I myself was Bar Mitzvah. Um, but I wanted to, if I could, go with you a little bit on the journey of what it is that's ha that seems to be happening in, uh, in the parashah here. And God calls to Moshe and, and he speaks to him from the Ohel Moed, from the tent of meeting, saying, Adam ki akriv mikem, korban, when a person wants to bring a korban uh, to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So these are the prerequisites of how one brings a korban, how one brings uh, a sacrifice to Hashem. These are not things that we have at the current moment. A person, don't, we don't have a Beit HaMikdash. We don't have the ability um, to, what's it called, to uh, sacrifice uh, in the Beit HaMikdash anymore. But at the same time, um, we know our tefillot, our prayers, whether they are in synagogues or whether they are in private, they take the place of the sacrifices of the Korbanot that they used to have in the Beit HaMikdash. Okay? But I want to focus on one thing, and that is this idea of a korban, of a sacrifice, being in the Hebrew, the word korban, which comes from the root of the word karov, which means um, to bring something close. That's literally the interpretation of the word korban, a mechanism for closeness, karevan, that which makes you close. Okay, now seeing as that is the case, it's interesting that the entire story that begins the question or the quest of um, uh, a, a, uh, a conversation of Korban happens in a very new way, where God calls to Moshe Rabbeinu, and Moshe Rabbeinu is told, um, he's told, he's called by God, and the Pasuk tells us that the little, we see that the little aleph of the word Vayikra is made to be a little bit smaller, okay? We've all, we've all noticed that in the, in the parashiot before. We've noticed it in the Torah and various instances. I'm sure some of you have seen it uh, up close. If you've gone to kiss a Torah, obviously, in a, in a less complicated time when, uh, when we were kissing Torahs, okay? You would have noticed that in every single Torah, 
the Aleph of the word Vayikra is, uh, is, um, is tiny, and there's a tremendous lesson from that, and that's where I want to begin our conversation today, okay? So, Vayikra Adonai El Moshe, and God calls to Moshe. And if you look at the word, you'll notice that with the very small Aleph, what it actually looks at looks like as it, it looks like it's as if it's saying vayiker, and God happened upon. So the difference between vayikra with the aleph in its fullest expression, or with the aleph in its minimized expression, the way you would find it in the Sefer Torah, is that from a distance, if you were to read from the Torah from back, you it would seem you were reading. Vayiker, and God happened to appear to Moshe. That is the fascinating difference between Aleph and no Aleph. One tiny letter. What's the difference? Did God call to Moshe, or did God instead happen upon Moshe? Moshe himself is being told by God, I'm calling to you. But Moshe doesn't want to write that, because that would seem to someone to be, um, if you will, a little bit presumptuous, a little bit arrogant. Of all the people God is calling me an expression of closeness, uh, you know what? I'm just going to make it look like it says, and God happened upon me. Now, I want to point out something which I think is very powerful. All right? Now, if I was to ask you the following question, do you think that Moshe, Moshe Rabbeinu, do you think that Moshe thought that he was the greatest prophet that ever lived or that ever would live? What do you think? We know that he's very humble. We can see that he's trying to change the word Vayikra to Vayiker. Okay? Rabbi, is it possible you can mute everybody? Hold on one second. Let me try muting everybody. Do you know what happens? As soon as new people join, so then they're not muted. So another two people just join. Even as I, each time I'm doing it, I, I don't know if you're noticing, I'm keep touching the phone because I have to keep admitting more people to the to the Zoom to the Zoom chat. So uh, and as they, as they join, another one just joined. Um, they are they're no longer on mute. But I'll do my best. Okay. So here we are. We're looking at. Um, at Moshe Rabbeinu, the greatest of all uh, prophets, but also the most humble of all prophets, of all people that ever lived. Moshe, Aish Moshe, Anav, Mikola, Adam, Asher, Pnei Adama. He's um, more humble than anybody. So I want to ask you, do you think that Moshe himself thought about himself that he was the greatest prophet to have ever lived and ever, who, whoever would live? That would include his own father, it would, who was a prophet. It would include Avraham Avinu. It would include Yitzchak, Yaakov, the, the Shivatim. So I remember thinking about this, maybe like a little thought exercise. And I realized something that I thought was magnificent. And that is that if Moshe did not believe, he, he had to believe that he was the greatest prophet that ever lived. Why? And what's my proof? If you open up Harambam, Maimonides writes that any Jew that does not believe 
that Moshe Rabbeinu was the greatest prophet that ever lived and would be the biggest prophet that ever lived is an Apikores. He's someone who is considered to be a heretic. Now, do the laws of, uh, of the Torah apply to Moshe Rabbeinu? Of course they do. What that means then is that Moshe Rabbeinu, like every other Jew, has an obligation to believe that he himself was the greatest prophet to ever live and that ever would live. Not to believe in it would turn Moshe himself, Barmenan, into an apikoris, into a heretic. So it's a fascinating thought exercise. But there's no question that that's true. So here we are, we're finding, feeling this dichotomy. On the one hand, Vayikra, Moshe knows, I have to write that God called me. I'm the most special prophet ever. That's who I am. I got to write it. On the other hand, I want to make it seem as if it just happens to be that this happened, you know, that God called me. So I can't change that in the Torah. So what will I do? I'll minimize the Aleph. It will look like it just happens to be. On the other hand, really, I'm being called in an expression of great uh, 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 closeness and something that shows that I'm dear to Bore Olam. Now, to me, this speaks volumes because I'm trying to understand, to get a grip on what this means. How could it be that Moshe was the greatest prophet ever, but that God just happened to appear to him and it wasn't because of him? How could that be? And I'd like to share with you something which I think is uh, a, a very special idea. And that is as follows. You know, there's a lot of times where a person can recognize God's hand in their world. They can recognize God intervening, uh, placing a fingerprint, saying, look, I was here, notice me, okay? Notice me. But just because you attribute this thing to God, you attribute your success to a miracle from God in your life, that does not mean um, that you have a understanding or that does not mean that you don't know or don't feel that that was deserved. So let me give you an example of what this looks like. You know, Rabbi, um, uh, you know, before all the craziness, you know, I went to shul. I didn't, you know, it was very tough for me to go to shul. And I, I started coming to shul because I felt it was very important. And what could I do? You know, uh, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, it, it, I, 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 I missed it. You know, and you tell the guy, no, Rob, you know, you got to try. You got to do your best. You have to do everything you can to get involved. Finally, the guy comes. And on the day he comes, that day, he comes to you and he says, you don't understand. I went, I went to the office. I haven't been to shul since my bar mitzvah. I went to the office and I was killing it. Everything I was doing was on fire. Every phone call I made, you know, worked perfectly. Everything was amazing. Hashem is unbelievable. Look at how he paid me back. Now, I want you to hear that sentence with me for a second. Look at how Hashem paid me back. So what that means is that I'm recognizing the miracle from God, but I'm also saying that that miracle is something that I deserve. The Gemara says a very cryptic statement. The Gemara says that arrogance is a terrible, terrible character trait. 
And yet, even though it's a terrible character trait, still the halacha is that a person is allowed to have sheminit sheba sheminit. He's allowed to have an eighth of an eighth of gava, of arrogance. So for all of you who are studying maths, what is an eighth of an eighth of arrogance? That would be one sixty-fourth. But the Talmud also knew that one eighth and one eighth is one sixty-fourth. They didn't need me to tell them that. So why does it say sheminit sheba sheminit? And the answer is Rabbutai, that we're all familiar with the idea that in Judaism the number eight represents um, things that are miraculous. Seven represents the natural cycle, the seven days of the week, the seven years of Shemitah, etc., etc. And eight always represent that which is above the supernatural. The seven days of, uh, of the holiday of Sukkot and then Shemini Atzeret is the day that rises above all of that. So eight always represents the supernatural in Judaism and seven represents the natural. So Sheminit Sheba Sheminit means that if a person is feeling arrogance, they could feel a miracle, a sheminit of a sheminit, which means that yes, a miracle happened to me. But why did a miracle happen to me? You know why? Because of another sheminit, because of another miracle. Maybe it would be a little bit more humble for this guy who doesn't come to shul at all, who finally came one time to recognize that yes, it was God that helped him out, but maybe not because. He was being paid back. God doesn't really owe him. The guy, you know, he's not coming to shul normally. This is his first time coming. Don't you think maybe a few more times before God's doing miracles for you? So there are miracles that God does. And then sometimes it is a miracle that we've deserved a miracle. Do you hear those two things? So as an example, the Jewish people were redeemed from Egypt. That was a miracle. But it was a miracle that we got the miracle. Why? Because we didn't deserve it. For almost each and every human being on this planet, that God graces you with every single breath in your lungs, with every thought in your head, with every pump of your heart, right? With, uh, with that kind of, a, uh, of a, a running debt to God, you know, it is impossible for a person to honestly feel that they deserve the miracles that are coming their way. So if that is the case, that's what this means to all of us. It means to each and every one of us to recognize that that your miracles, each day that they are with us, we count them as miracles. We count the miracles as miracles. I want to share with you an unbelievable story, if that's okay. All right? <clears throat> there was a young woman, and her name was Malka. She unfortunately had a sister, and the sister had a child who unfortunately suffered from uh, cerebral palsy. Once a year in the summer, they would take this child, they would go to Davos in Switzerland, where the air was very good, and it was great for her uh, to do some rehab there, which, where she could breathe easier, they would take her on walks, etc., etc., and that was the best that they could do, and they did the best that they could do, and each year, one of the sisters of, this, uh, of this, this little child's mother each year would accompany her on the way 
you know, to to uh, to try and spend the, those few days, that week together with their niece, with their ill niece in uh, in Davos in Switzerland. This year, it happened to be Malka's turn. Okay, Malka, uh, she arrives in Davos. She's helping her sister. It's a very intensive job working with a patient with such extreme needs. They're doing their absolute best. It's wonderful. You know, she's getting to breathe. She's getting to go out. And then one morning, Malka comes downstairs to this hotel, the hotel lobby, and she sees there's a very religious-looking family, a father with a beard, a little bit, stri stri you know, strikes of gray running through it, a religious mother with her hair is covered, two little boys that look like they're very religious out of Israel, and then, uh, what's it called? And then next to the... How do you call it? Next to these two boys and the parents and the two yeshiva bacha boys with the wearing their hat and jacket is one girl who's clearly part of the family. She looks identical to everybody else, but is also clearly dressed in a in very provocative clothing, uh, very short, very tight, very this, very that. You know, no judgments, but she notices that this girl doesn't quite fit the picture of everyone else around her, okay? So she walks up to the couple and she says to them, all their suitcases piled up from the floor like this. She <laughs> says to them, is, uh, is everything okay? They say, yeah, everything's fine, thank you very much. Uh, you sure? Yeah, yeah, sure, we're, you know, no problem. She says, okay, uh, nice to meet you. My name is Malka. She says, she bids goodbye and she goes back upstairs to the room. They go to the room, she's massaging her niece her niece's muscles, you know, they have, they, you know, spend the day inside on the porch of the, of their hotel room until finally the time comes and it's around dinner time and they've decided that they're going to go outside and take a walk and take a walk in the, uh, right before sunset. Okay. She comes downstairs with her niece in the, uh, in the wheelchair. She's walking through the lobby and the couple, this family, from the morning, is still sitting there in the exact same spot, suitcases piled up till here, the boy is playing around on the carpet, two yeshiva buckers sitting in the side, probably learning something, and this girl sitting there sprawled out next to, next to the rest of them. She walks up to them, she's like, I can't believe you're still here. Is everything okay? Are you sure? I mean, I just passed you this morning. What's going on? And the woman says, thank you so much for asking. She says, um, We've just been here for a few days uh, as a family, and our flight is unfortunately scheduled for 4 a.m. So we, uh, you know, we, it was very difficult for us to pay for another room since we checked out this morning. And we decided instead of checking out, ch staying checked in and then paying for another day that we can't afford, so we would just wait in the lobby until our car came to take us to the airport. She says, are you kidding me? So you've been sitting here from checkout at 11 a.m. Now it's already 7 p.m. You, you're not going to be able to leave the hotel to go to the airport until roughly 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning tonight to get, go catch your flight. She said, you can't sit here just with no food and no beds. They said, please come. We have a large room. 
why don't you come upstairs to our room, to my room, my sister, my niece's room. You know, you guys will get, make you something kosher to eat. You guys could rest up a little bit. You know, the kids, the mother's like, no, thank you so much. We appreciate it until the teenage, until that daughter, 20, 22 years old, she says, ma, my back is killing me. I'm trying to sit the whole day next to the suitcases here. Look at the kids. They're very tired. Maybe we should take them up. She says, you know what? Thank you so much. You know what? We will. We'll come up with you. They go up to the room. She gets busy. Malka, she's making sandwiches. She's doing this. That's how Jewish people travel. They have enough food for like 10 families with them, right? Even if they don't need it. That's how we are. That's, that's the Jewish people. It's part of our Abraham Avinu blood that we need to take care of everyone that, you know, everyone that comes our way. She makes them sandwiches. You know, they're sitting together. They start talking. After a little while, the kids start to chat with the little girl who's not well. They start having good conversation, etc., etc. You know, and then they said, look, you know, why don't you guys look exhausted? Why don't we, we're going to go for a walk earlier anyway. We'll, we'll take our, our niece and, and daughter for a walk now. And why don't you guys rest up? And then, you know, you can go to the airport a little bit later after having had a rest. Clearly, they were so exhausted because they also agreed uh, to this. They left and the family has gone, gone, went to sleep that night, that afternoon, that evening, whatever, in, in their room. A little time goes by, they come back from their walk and uh, the family is saying bye. The mother comes up to this woman, Malka, she takes her hand and she's looking right in her eyes and she's saying, mother to mother, you don't understand what you've done. Thank you so much. I can't say thank you enough. You've, you're a lifesaver, this, that, and the other. Thank you, thank you. Can I have your address? Um, uh, I just would like to send you uh, a thank you. She gives her the address and doesn't think anything much more of it. Rabutai, two years pass, two years. And a letter comes under the door to Malka's house. And the letter is an invitation in Hebrew to a wedding. And it says on the front, Malka ima shel kala. Malka, the mother of the bride. She's got no idea what's, what this is. Um, she's, uh, you know, it's two years. Two years later, she probably wouldn't even remember. It wasn't on her mind at the time, but she flips it over and it says, Suri, the woman from the Davos Hotel. Her mind brings her back. That day, she saw this family, welcomed them up to the room. She's thinking to herself, oh, wow, okay, um, what's going on? And underneath it, it just says a phone number, please call me. She calls this, this lady, and after one ring, the phone gets yanked up, hello? And she says, hi, this is Malka, uh, I got the invitation. She says, yes, it's, it's for me, you guys remember us? Yes, of course we remember you. She says, but, but please, she says, tell me, why did you address it to Malka, Ima Shel Kala? And this woman says, Rabotai, you need to hear this. This woman says, I bet you noticed that day that I have a daughter who maybe didn't look like the rest of the family. She says, yes, I did. I did notice. She says, well, my daughter, she decided at a young age that this whole religious Jewish lifestyle really wasn't so much for her. She decided instead she was going to leave the whole family behind and the heritage and Judaism behind. And she was going to go backpacking, you know, to see the world, et cetera, et cetera, be free spirited, et cetera. And you know what? We tried to show her as much love and acceptance as we could. But bottom line, she was just on her own path. 
So we kept telling her that whenever she wanted, she was welcome at home, how proud we were of her. And as time went on, you know, more and more and more, we started to realize um, that she was away for a very long time. And we started getting nervous until finally we got the message that broke our hearts. The message was, dear dad and mom, I've met a wonderful Indian young man. His name is Ian. And he's a computer programmer. And he's a wonderful guy. And I met him on my trips. And we've decided that we're getting married. Parents are losing their mind. What are they going to do? Their daughter's on the other side of the world. You know, they clearly don't have a good language to be able to speak with her. And now she wants to marry this person who's not Jewish. She wants to walk away from her faith completely. What could they do? What should they do? So they asked a few different people advice. And someone said to them, look, if you can't get her to come back to Israel, why don't you instead take your family and go on a trip to somewhere in Europe and maybe invite her along. Clearly, she's someone who has the wanderlust. Maybe, you know, she'll come on the trip. She'll kind of remember why it was important to be part of a Jewish family. And the woman says to Malka, she says, and with no other options in our hands, we took the option. And we booked. We barely had any money, but we spent our life savings to book one week in Davos in Switzerland. Our daughter... Sipora, she said that she was willing to come to this one week vacation in Switzerland with us, but that after that, she was going back to her boyfriend and that they would be married and that that would be it. Malka, she says, the trip was doomed from the start. From day one, all she had was a negative attitude. What do you think you're better than everybody else? Why do you think Jewish people? Why do I have to marry someone who's Jewish? What is this? Racism, on and on. And the kids didn't know what to do with her. We were all just trying to make it a nice environment, but she was so bitter and she was so angry and she was so disconnected that nothing we said seemed to work. And you know what she said? There was a few other Jewish families in the hotel. You know, at every time, one of them would pass us by that morning while we were waiting in the lobby. I'd get a glare from my daughter, Tsipora, almost challenging me. See, look, they didn't say anything. They didn't do anything. What is this family that you talk so much about worth? She said, and then you invited us into the room and you wouldn't take no for an answer. And you made us sandwiches. And then you left your own room so that we could take your room to relax in. She said, and that night and that day, Tsipora looked at me and said, that's somebody, and that is something special. We packed up, went to the airport that night, and my daughter went back to India. But within two days, I got a phone call saying, Mommy, I'm ready to come home. I'm ready to rejoin again this family called the Jewish people called Am Yisrael, a family that welcomes everybody else in to its own room, gives it its own food because it's part of one family. She said, so you want to know why now that my daughter is marrying a wonderfully nice, connected, traditional Jewish man called Avichai, I'm writing Malka Ima Shel Kala because you and me are partners in this one.
You know, I think that one of Moshe's greatest attributes was the fact that he was simultaneously capable of being the greatest in the world, but also capable of trying to whatever degree God would allow him to, to push the focus off of himself and to think perhaps of how that would make Aharon his brother feel or how other Sadiqim might feel, etc., etc. I read this week the most unbelievable story about Rabbi Tauber. Rabbi Tauber's father unfortunately had a horrible story during the war. And after thinking <coughs> that everything was lost, he made his way back after the Holocaust was over. And he thought his wife was dead and people were setting him up with Shiduchim. And he kept saying, I have a feeling he had a dream that his wife was alive. And then one day, walking down the road, walking down the road in front of the house is his wife. And the kids who are alive with him that they put by other people, they look at the window and they run outside and they see their mother who's been to Auschwitz. And they, they try to throw their arm around the mother and their mother pushes their hands down. Pushes their hands down. And she walks inside the house. And only inside the house does she throw her arms wide and embrace them and hug them and kiss them. And the kids ask, Ma, why, why did you wait only to give us hugs and kisses inside the house? And Mrs. Tauber said, <coughs> Mrs. Tauber said, because people were watching. People who didn't get to make hugs and give kisses were watching. And how would our beautiful family reunion have made them feel? Knowing that their wives were never coming back or that maybe their children were never coming back. This is the greatness that sits within a Jew, even a Jew who knows that they are great, who is capable of understanding and of feeling someone else's pain and someone else's needs. That is Moshe Rabbeinu. While God is showering him with attention, Moshe is saying, what is this going to look like to somebody else? What an unbelievable power of emunah that you don't need to fight to feel big. You know, we always say in psychology that when people try and make themselves big, it always is because deep down inside themselves, they feel small. They call it small man syndrome, Napoleon syndrome, where someone who's very short needs to do a lot to make up for the fact that he feels small. And this is not about height, obviously. When people are small, they need to overcompensate to make sure that everybody else shows them respect. But what is beautiful here about Moshe Rabenu is that Moshe has all the power and all he's doing all the time is trying to give it away or trying to make sure that other people don't feel threatened by it. Moshe's face is shining with light and he covers it with a masveh, with, uh, with a mask so that people could come speak to him. I think that that is very symbolic, that idea. That sometimes 
we can be too big for people to be able to come speak to us. So we need to hide a little bit of our greatness in order for people to feel comfortable with us. You need to, instead of maybe being so uh, uh, proficient, such an expert that the person feels stupid talking to you, if you want them to talk to you, that you need to bring yourself down a couple notches in order that the person feels this is someone I can have a conversation, someone who understands me. You know, what does the king know about my problems? And it's fascinating that we find this exact language in the language of the Beracha. We say in every single Beracha what seems to be a contradiction in syntax. Baruch ata Amonai. And the Sefarim say, it's very interesting, that we're using God's name there, Baruch ata Amonai. Every time you use the name of somebody, it indicates that that person or being is not with you. So you are basically, you need to use their name to speak about them as if they aren't there. Whereas when you say you, you indicates the person's in the room. So I say, how are you feeling? That's when the person's right here. If the person's not with me, it's very difficult for me to say you. Uh, if you're not here, you don't, no one knows who I'm talking about. So what's fascinating is Baruch Ata Amonai is a confluence of two different and disparate expressions. Is it God? Baruch Ata Amonai, are you God who is far away, who is in the heavens, who controls the earth? Or is it Ata you that you're standing right here opposite me? And the parallel, the paradigm of God being this dual possibility at the same time, God being all powerful, but at the same time, all listening. Let me hear you and your tiny little problem. Let me hear it. I'm right here with you in the room. I hear what you're worried about. Talk to me. That nature of God was something that Moshe had managed not only to understand and experience in his life, the God of the Hebrews was a God that, that saved him personally, a God that intervened when they tried to give him an execution, a God that intervened when his hand had reached for uh, the, the gold instead of the coins. He knew that God took care of him personally. And then he met God talking to him oh, on a man. national, on a world level, when he was telling him about decimating Egypt, the world's strongest power. So Moshe met a God that was simultaneously right there with you, but also uh, far enough away, so to speak, to be able to manage everything together. And because that was true, Rabotai, Moshe Rabenu also embodied that Midah himself. His face is shining. Let me cover it with a mask so Rochi, we, you and I can speak. Vayikra, God is calling me. No, no, Vayikra, don't worry. It just God happened to choose me. But really, guys, it could have been any one of you. I was off in the walk in the desert at the time, so I saw a burning bush. But if I didn't see it, I'm sure someone else would have seen it, you know, and then they would be in charge. That was Moshe's approach. It was a miracle, everything that was happening to him. But it was also a miracle that he was chosen to be the recipient of that miracle. Coronavirus is huge, Rabotai. It affects everybody in every family, in every house, pretty much. Estimates now are 70% of New York City are going to have 
this virus. Most people, it won't be something as we know, it won't be something that is going to uh, cause them that much harm or damage. But at the same time, we know it's everywhere and that's a very frightening thing. It's a scary thing. I wanna share with you something. And I think that this is where you need your big boy pants, okay? The big boy pants come on when we are capable of holding two opposite things at the same time. It's a child that is only capable of holding one emotion or the other. Either a child is very happy as ice cream or he's very angry, has to do his homework. You see what I mean? Could, could there be a situation where you are both happy and sad? Absolutely. Just usually not for children, yeah? more mature, emotionally aware human beings are capable of that. It is a scary thing, we should be scared. But just because we should be scared doesn't mean we lose control of ourselves. Just because we know that there's challenges out there doesn't mean that we can at the same time also feel safe along with the challenges. Yes, I could also get a piano fall on my head. I could also get hit by a bus. I could also have a million things happening to me. That doesn't mean I'm not calm because I think nothing will happen to me. I'm calm because I'm alive. This is where I am right now. Why don't I make the best of what I've got in the moment in which I've got it? That is something that we're learning here from Moshe. The ability to simultaneously feel like he's the biggest Navi in the world. He's not, a, he's not ever allowed to think that he's not. If he does, as we said earlier, he's an apicores, has to shalom. But at the same time, at the same time, to retain the accessibility. So this made me think of one point that I wanted to share with you and maybe we'll, uh, we'll end with this. And that is, what happens when God calls? Vayikra. El Moshe and God calls to Moshe. And he tells him, he calls him from the oil Mu'ed and he says, let me tell you a little bit about Korbanot, about the nature of Korvan, of something that brings someone close. The nature, I would like to argue <coughs> that the nature, the nature of Korvan, of hearing God's call, of coming close to Hashem. When you call someone, what are you looking for? You want, you want them to come close to you. That's why we call people. I just call to say, I love you. Remember that? I just call to say, I care. Remember that, right? I just call to say, I love you. I just call to say, I care. We call, that's why we call people. And God is no different. God is calling to all of us. But what is God calling to say? God's calling to say, I want you to come closer to me. You got a little distracted. I'm not going to tell any of you how, but in your own lives, figure out. You got a little distracted. You've forgotten me. You've maybe forgotten your family a bit. You know, you've forgotten some of your responsibilities. Maybe you've forgotten your prayers. Maybe you've been rushing out a little bit too fast, you know, to run to work. So you know what? Okay, let me get rid of all those distractions for a minute. 
and let's see what it looks like when I take all of those away. You know, how are we now? What does our relationship look like now? So when God calls to all of us for korban, for kirva, for closeness, what is he expecting of us? And I think that the answer is, it's found in one small letter. In an Aleph Zi'ira, in a little Aleph. In the little Aleph of Moshe Rabbeinu. You know, human beings are complicated. We are complicated. We just are. Even when we think we're straightforward, we're complicated. All of us. Me, you, all of us. But in many ways, we're complicated in the same way. Do you know what I mean by that? You know, a computer is an expensive and complicated piece of equipment. But if you take two computers, they're both complicated and they're both expensive, but in very similar ways are they complicated. Uh, the, la the language that the computer programs are written in is very similar, even if it has different programs on it. Um, the problems you're going to have when... Uh, when you have uh, issues with the computer, probably a lot of times are relatively similar, one computer to the next, and human beings are like that too. For almost all of us, we are, f we are fundamentally either deficient in our Vayikra, or we are fundamentally deficient in our Vayikr. We either think too little of ourselves, or we think too much of ourselves. When God says, come to me, what he's telling you is, you are powerful enough, important enough, holy enough, that what you do makes a difference to me, to Bore Olam himself. Like, if you knew that anytime you picked up the phone, President Trump would answer, you could get Putin on the line in two seconds. You'd probably feel pretty good about yourself. Well, forget that. You can get God on the phone instantaneously. And you don't even need batteries or signal. So one of the things that's required for a person to have a relationship with Hashem and indeed to be successful in life is to have the ability within their life to be able to reach out to God and think that each one of their deeds matter, that perfection for them is attainable, that they have the ability to make difficult choices, that they can be patient and that they can be kind and that they can forget all these things that they think they can't do. So either the problem is a Vayikra problem where you are very dear to God and you don't understand how dear, or the problem is that you think you're too dear to God and you need a little bit of Vayikra because you don't think you could ever make a mistake. Me? Mistake, are you kidding me? You know how dear I am to Hashem? I don't make mistakes. These types of things don't happen. You know? I, uh, <coughs> I'm reminded of uh, these recordings that were going around a short while ago, claiming that Jewish people can't get coronavirus because uh, Jews are different. And I was just laughing and I was saying, why are people sending this out? What is this? This is so stupid. You know, I said, what are they going to do as soon as someone, some Jewish guy gets a coronavirus? And immediately afterwards, obviously, Jews started catching coronavirus. Then another video came out. Do you know 
Jews? Not one Jewish person died from coronavirus. And I said, this is so stupid. What's going to happen when someone dies from coronavirus who's Jewish? <clears throat> we are not different. We were not built differently to other peoples of this earth on a physical level. We were granted the opportunity to choose to be different on a spiritual level. And anyone in the world, Jewish or not, that chooses to be part of God's army has that option as well, to choose to be part of this, to choose to live for Borei Olam, to choose to live for meaning, to choose to follow God's word to humankind. All of us get that chance. But you know what? The hubris of someone who says, Vayikra, I'm called by God, chosen, I'm untouchable. It's always the nation. It's always the time when Am Yisrael thinks that they are untouchable, that we fall the hardest. May God bless us with the appropriate and requisite humility in our lives to have a beautiful Vayikra. And may God bless us with the incredible confidence and courage in our lives to feel within ourselves an incredible Vayikra. And it is that kind of a Vayikra that allows people to act like Malkas, to walk downstairs. Malka literally means queen, to walk downstairs to see someone, to invite them to their room, to take charge of the situation. It's what allows someone who is so desperate to hug her own children that she recognizes I can control myself in order to be able to protect someone else from the pain of seeing this when they don't have it as well. That is the power that we've got inside of us because we've chosen to live these lives. May we always answer God's call. And like the Pasuk says, that when God calls, when Hashem calls to us and we say it, when God also, when he calls to us, uh, we answer the call. So too may it be the case. May it be the case that God also answers the call um, that, we, that we issue in our time of need. May we be to see speedily in our days a complete for all the people that need it for Shilomo Ben Shoshana. May we be to see and to experience together a beautiful Pesach together in the synagogue, even better in Yerushalayim. Amen. 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 Thank you. Amen.